1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in this letter, verses 3 through 12 of this first chapter uh, serve as what's called in ancient rhetoric an exordium. Now, an exordium is a sort of uh, an introduction to an argument, and it's meant to put the audience in a favorable state of mind. Now, you can see a brief example of an exordium in Acts chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul has gone to Athens, and as he is uh, walking through and observing the city, he's greatly troubled by the enormous numbers of idols that he sees. And yet when he goes to uh, share the gospel with the city's leaders, how does he begin his speech? He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Paul's exordium in this argument was meant to establish a connection between him and his audience and to tell them that they had good religious longings before he demonstrated that their religious longings found their true fulfillment only in Christ. But this isn't always the right way to craft an exordium. And for a different sort of example, we could think of the call to worship for a worship service. Now, a call to worship is, first of all, God's summons to his people to worship him. But in a secondary sense, you can think of it as a sort of exordium for the worship service. Uh, Now, suppose that I began a worship service by complimenting you all. John, I like your haircut. Angie, I appreciate how flexible you are about Sunday school. James, you do such a good job at being assiduous about dealing with the live stream. Why wouldn't I start out a service that way? Well, it doesn't fit the purpose of the service, does it? You know, we come to worship and honor and praise God, not to shower one another with compliments. Well, Peter's purpose in this letter is likewise different from Paul's purpose at the beginning of his speech in Athens. For Peter's audience already believes in Christ, but needs encouragement to carry on in God's strength. Peter doesn't need to form a persuasive connection like Paul did. He doesn't need to butter up his audience like I apparently do. He, he needs to show his friends uh, in, these, in these provinces of Asia that God's grace gives them strength to stand firm against their trials. And so he begins his exordium not by praising the audience, but by praising God. And in so doing, he's beginning to show that the entire Christian life is lived in praise to God. For here at the beginning of his letter, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But at the end of this letter, he signs off by saying, This is 
the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so in the between, he's going to be showing that the glory of God is manifested in his strength that he graciously gives to his people to stand firm. And as we see here, this glory is most fully revealed in Christ. For as Peter says, we live to the praise of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've never seen God, but we've seen Jesus. Peter saw Jesus with his own two eyes. Uh, The rest of us living today, some 2,000-ish years later, have had the eyes of our hearts enlightened, as Paul writes in Ephesians, to see him in his word. And as John writes of Jesus, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So everything that we see in Christ is true of God the Father as well. And so Peter is starting off his letter with praise to God to show that our whole life is lived in praise to God. And these verses 3 through 12 in the original languages, it's one long sentence with the only main idea being blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you, were, if you look at it grammatically, every other phrase in this long sentence is, uh, is controlled by that concept of, of praise or blessing to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, looking ahead to verses 6 through 9, we would see that God's provision through our trials is to the praise of, God, of our God. And in verses 10 through 12, we see that the fulfillment of what the prophet said, foretold about Christ, is in praise to God. But in tonight's passage, verses 3 through 5, we see that our new birth in Christ is to the praise of God. And all of this goes to show that God is praiseworthy on his own merits. He is praiseworthy just as he is. And yet he is gracious to give us evidence of his praiseworthiness as well. And so today, as we look at these verses 3 through 5, we'll consider how our new birth in Christ is to the praise of God. And first, we'll look at the new birth generally, and then we'll look at the three specific facets of this new birth that Peter raises, our living hope, our inheritance, and our God's guarding us for that inheritance. And so first, we look at our new birth. For our rebirth through Christ's resurrection is Peter's first line of evidence for God's praiseworthiness. Now, when it says that God caused us to be born again, the English here is translating a Greek word that has no direct equivalent in English. Um, Perhaps a more direct and yet more uh, awkward English translation would be that he reparented us or re-begat us. Now, the meaning of this word brings up three important points. God's responsibility for our new birth, God's transforming work through our new birth, and Jesus' resurrection as the means of our new birth. Now, first, God is fully responsible for, for your new birth. Now, think about that. Were you responsible for your natural birth? 
We could perhaps give my mom a call and ask her how much help I was while she was in labor with me, and uh, I think she would laugh long at heart at, and hard at the suggestion, right? Well, our rebirth in Christ is the same. For this verb caused us to be born again. It's, it's just one word in Greek, and it's written with God as the one who is taking all of the action. There's no room for your activity in your own rebirth. And there's a reason given for why God did this, why God took this step of causing you to be reborn. He did it because of his great mercy. But it's not only indicating the reason for our new birth, for the Greek word translated according to often shows both the reason as well as a standard for comparison. So not only is God's mercy, his desire to to give you what you don't deserve, to give you good things that you didn't earn, his mercy is the reason for new birth, but also the magnitude of new birth is matched only by God's mercy. The magnitude of God's mercy is the same magnitude of our new birth. And mercy is one of God's attributes. It's part of his character. And so your new birth in Christ flows out of his perfect character and thus is perfectly secure. Well, second, God is transforming you by this new birth. Your natural birth determines so much about you. And this was in some ways more true in the ancient world than it is today. For suppose you were born a boy in the ancient world. Your birth determined your future occupation because you would probably follow in your father's footsteps. My last name is Wright. Now, this name emerged around A.D. 700 as as a, a surname that was given to those who were workers in wood, uh, uh, skilled woodworkers specifically, sort of your Finnish carpenters and uh, uh, people who would make sculptures out of wood, perhaps. And the fact that this was given as a surname indicates that this trade, at some point in my family tree, was passed down from father to son for some generations. Well, suppose you were born a girl. Likewise, you'd follow in the footsteps of your mother, learning whatever activities and skills she put to use in the home. And that could also include economic goods. If your mother uh, knew how to make cheese or if she knew how to weave fabric, these were home-based trades that you would also learn to provide for the needs of your own home and even to sell any surplus uh, to put the money in the family coffers. Birth determines a lot of other things about you. It determines your ethnicity. It determines your socioeconomic starting place. It determines a certain degree of your natural demeanor and personality and so on. And so being born, reborn by God likewise changes your natural endowments. Where you once had no hope and were spiritual orphans in this world, now you have a living hope and adoption and therefore you have an inheritance which we'll talk about shortly. By this spiritual birth, you're being transformed. You're being changed and growing into the image of Christ. By this spiritual birth, God is at work in you so that you might walk righteously before him. 
By spiritual birth, you confess that Jesus is the Christ and you have love for your brothers and sisters. I, I could go on for a long time, but suffice to say that this new birth transforms and shapes you as much as your natural birth did. And third, Christ's resurrection from the dead is the means of your new birth. God gave you new birth by raising Christ from the dead. Paul draws on this a little further in Romans 6, 5, saying, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christ's own resurrection is the pattern for your new life. And this takes place by faith working in you. Faith that God can do and has done these things. Paul writes in Romans 4 that you are counted righteous by God if you believe in him who did what? Raised Jesus from the dead. The fact that Jesus was dead and that God raised him again is what makes everything else in this passage, tonight's passage, work. For if God didn't raise Christ from the dead... There's no guarantee of our new birth. There's no cause for a living hope. There's no promise of our future inheritance and no cause to believe that God is guarding us so we might receive that inheritance. Now, sometimes it's hard to believe in the resurrection, and I've, if this is you tonight, I've got good news for you. Even the apostles had a hard time believing it when they first saw Jesus. But it's helpful, right, to consider some of the circumstances of Christ's resurrection. Here's just a couple of things to think about. The city, when, when, when Jesus died and rose again, the city of Jerusalem was stuffed to the gills. At minimum, there were 100,000 people there to celebrate the Passover, and likely many more. Uh, the Roman garrisons would have also been on high alert and possibly even had extra, uh, extra soldiers on hand because Jewish festivals carried with them a certain risk of revolt against the Roman Empire. And so if the apostles had just gone into the tomb and carried off Jesus' corpse, they would have been seen. And they would have been identified before they could tell any tall tales about Christ's resurrection. Or consider this, the apostles showed themselves willing to die for the testimony of his resurrection. Now, people sometimes do willingly die for a lie, but the key is that they don't believe that it's a lie. Yet if the apostles knew they hadn't seen Jesus actually alive again, they would know that they were dying for a lie. It's dying for a lie that you know is a lie is a very rare thing indeed. And yet for all this, even though there are good reasons to believe in the resurrection, ultimately, we receive it by faith. And in so doing, we entrust ourselves from a, to, to a God who has indeed raised Christ from the dead. And so we turn now from the fact of our new birth to some of its benefits. And first, we see that new birth through Jesus' resurrection leads us to a living hope. For we are not simply born again to continue living life as we knew it. We're born again to a living hope. Now, hope is not just wishful thinking. Hope is a confident assurance of what you expect for the future. And our hope 
is based on God's promise. Now, even the wicked Balaam said of God, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Now, our hope is in God who keeps his promises, who has all the power in the universe and is perfectly true to himself. And therefore, he is able to keep his promises. But the key to this hope is that we don't hope for futile things. That's what it means here when it says we're born again to a living hope. We don't, we don't hope in things that are dying, that are passing away. We don't hope for things that are subject to futility or perhaps looking at Ecclesiastes, vain things. Vain in that, in that book, I believe, meaning ephemeral. Things that just pass away, that are here today and gone tomorrow. We don't hope for futile things. We don't hope for dead things. But we hope for the promises of the living God. The Western society offers you so many things that you can hope in. A comfortable pension plan. Lots of travel and Norwegian cruises when you retire. Personal significance in your occupation. The one perfect, true, romantic relationship to be in. And it's not even just outside the church that we put our hope in some of these kinds of things. For all of our hearts are idol factories. We turn everything, even good things, into things that take the place of God in our hearts. So there are good gifts from God like solid theology and a healthy church community that can become the things that we place our hope in. And even when we place our hope in these good gifts from God, what we're doing is we're, even, we're, we're limiting our sense of the horizons of, which, of what God is able to do. And so everything that I just named is a good thing when you hold it in its proper place. But God has something much bigger and better in store for you because he has life in store for you. He has for you a resurrection like Christ's resurrection. And ultimately, he has the gift of himself. For our hope is to enjoy God himself at the end of Revelation, it says that the saints will see God's face. So if you have this living hope in you, you can be assured that you will see your Creator and that you will enjoy full life with Him forever. And just as Christ's resurrection led to His exaltation, your resurrection will lead to your glorification. And so that's the living hope that we're born to. But that's not the only benefit of new birth. For new birth also brings along with it an inheritance. Now, faith in Christ costs all of us something. You could be doing all kinds of other things with your Sunday mornings and evenings. Your regular offering could be put to other purposes. And in Christ, we deny ourselves the pleasures although they're fleeting pleasures, but we deny ourselves the pleasures of sin. Now, Peter's audience may well have, in fact, been disowned by their families, written out of the will on account of their faith in God. And today, there are many believers across the world who are disowned by their families and at risk of losing their lives for their faith. But where the world takes something away from us for our faith, God promises us an inheritance. He promises to restore to us so much more than we stand to lose for him. 
For this inheritance, as Peter writes, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. And so let's look at the imperishableness of this inheritance. Now, imperishable translates a word that indicates freedom from death and decay. I think the most relevant comparison is found in 1 Corinthians 9.25, where Paul writes, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now, the laurel wreath was was given to athletes when they uh, won uh, a victory in an athletic contest. It, it sort of reminds me at, at Portland Timbers soccer games. If you've ever seen this, uh, their, their mascot is this lumberjack, Timber Joey. And what does he have behind the north goal? He's got a big log. And every time a Timbers player scores a goal, he slices off a slice of that log. And at the end of the game, they present that log slice to each person that scored a goal. But here's the thing about that log. You know what happens about six weeks or so after it's awarded? It dries out, and it just cracks right down the middle. It, it splits in two, if not more. So the only way, if you want to keep your log slice as it is, you have to, to finish it. You have to cover it with, um, I suppose, polyurethane or something like that. And then maybe you can use it as a coffee table. But without that kind of care, it just falls apart. But unlike these kinds of trophies, the inheritance that God has to offer us needs no preservation. It's not going to dry out and fall apart. It's imperishable because it's given by God. Well, second, our inheritance is undefiled, meaning that it's free from uncleanness or sin. Well, in Hebrews 7.26, we read that Jesus, our high priest, is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And the word translated there, unstained, is the same word that Peter uses here as undefiled. So when you receive your inheritance, sin can no longer be a reality in your life. You will no longer be enslaved to sin. In fact, you are no longer enslaved to sin now. You will never have any cause to feel guilty or ashamed of anything you've done. Paul wrote of his own sins in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? God will, and God has. And you'll receive that in, his, in its fullness when he gives you the undefiled inheritance that he has waiting for you. Third, this inheritance is unfading. And the, the sense of this word is that it's free from the ravages of time. Now, this word shares a root with a word in James 1.11, which reads, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away. There's your word. Fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And... You know how your belongings suffer with the passage of time. Your house will need a new coat of paint one day. The silver gets tarnished and needs polishing. Clothes wear out and need mending. I was having coffee with James earlier, and I noticed all the edgewear on this shirt. I don't know how I'm going to take care of it, but it's just because I've had this shirt for 10 years. 
But no matter how long you wait for your inheritance, and no matter how long you enjoy it in the life to come, it will never need any kind of attention or service because it is unfading. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. God is preserving this inheritance, making sure that you will be able to enjoy it in the life to come. Your sins won't prevent you from receiving it. Any suffering you endure between now and then won't prevent you from receiving it. Nothing can put your inheritance at risk because God is the one preserving it for you and because he is keeping it in heaven, a place that is untouched by any kind of corruption. If you've ever gone to see the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, you'll know that it's kept in a bulletproof case. And that, that case has uh, tinted glass so that sunlight can't come in and fade it. The case itself is filled with helium, a noble gas, and no, not, there's no oxygen in there because oxygen would cause the ink to fade. And that helium is humidified because you need the right moisture content so that the parchment that this Declaration of Independence is written on, so that the parchment doesn't dry out and crack. So you're, the, the Declaration of Independence is kept in a place with these ideal conditions so that no damage, no harm can come to this document. And similarly, your inheritance is kept for you in heaven, a place where it is protected uh, from anything, any harm that could befall it. Corruption doesn't exist there, and it can't touch the inheritance that God has waiting for you. And so not only is the inheritance itself imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, it's kept by a God who has the power to preserve it in a place where no harm could possibly come to it. And so you have this inheritance that's kept in pristine condition for you. But God also knows that he needs a people to give that inheritance to you. So we turn next to how God is guarding you. For God guards you, his heir, by his power. God's power uh, is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Death is the one thing that is inevitable in all of our experience but God has conquered death, and you can be confident that he will guard you too. And he uses faith as his instrument for guarding you, for genuine faith in God perseveres. As Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's, ne it's not necessary that you never ever sin again, but it is necessary that you continue to put your trust in God, and that in faith you renounce sin, and by God's strength, live faithfully before him. Now, faith puts us in jeopardy with respect to the rest of our society, and that was especially true of the people that Peter's writing to. For He writes about how they're being tried and tested with fire on account of their faith. Faith puts us in jeopardy with respect to our society, but with respect to God, faith identifies you as his legitimate heir. And God will sustain you as part of his promise to guard you until you receive your inheritance. 
And the salvation that Peter writes about here should be identified and understood as the inheritance itself. And this gives us the clearest picture of what our inheritance really is. For everything that we think of as salvation is what God intends for us to receive as our inheritance. Leslie Newbegin wrote that in our sin we are in contradiction with God, in contradiction with one another, within ourselves, and with the natural world. But salvation is harmony in all of these aspects, harmony with God, harmony with one another, harmony within yourself, and a harmony with the natural world. These things are the inheritance that God is promising to you. And yet, even though we live out the benefits of faith today, this salvation is not yet our possession. For Peter writes, it's ready to be revealed in the last time. But today, it's true, we don't experience our salvation to the fullest extent possible. We're still waiting. You know, our, our hope is not yet sight, as Paul writes. And we look forward to a day of sinless life with God, and yet today we know that we have forgiveness of sins and that we are progressively being sanctified, and yet we also know that we fall short in sin in so many ways. And yet salvation is ready. It is fully prepared. And it has been fully prepared for you ever since Christ won the decisive victory by his crucifixion and resurrection. And by God's grace, you do experience some of the fruits of salvation now. Yet it remains for you to receive everything that God has for you in Christ. And yet even the fact that it is not yet revealed, Peter wants us to, to keep in mind that we have to understand this not yet in light of the fact that it is presently ready. There's no question that you will receive it. God isn't putting uh, the finishing touches on your salvation. No, your inheritance is fully ready. And all that remains is for Christ to return and reveal it. And in the meantime, God is guarding both you and his salvation, your inheritance for you. And so there you have it. You have a living hope, specifically a hope of being delivered safely to receive your inheritance. And all of this is through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And I think here it's instructive to see how the resurrection changed Peter himself. Now, Peter was, in some ways, Jesus' most loyal follower. And yet, how did he comport himself during Jesus' earthly ministry? He embarrasses himself time and time again. When Peter tried to tell Jesus not to go to the cross, Jesus rebukes him as Satan himself. When Jesus was giving himself up to arrest, Peter does what? He cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And finally, when, when Jesus was being questioned and, and tried in this mock trial, basically, Peter denies that he even knew Jesus. But what a difference it made after Jesus rose again. What a different story, a different Peter, practically. For hearing the news, Peter runs to the tomb and he finds it empty. We read in John 21 that for each of the three times 
that he denies Christ, Jesus gives him the opportunity to tell him that he loves him. And Peter receives three times the charge to take care of Jesus' sheep. In Acts 2, we read about how Peter preached to all Jerusalem that Jesus is the Messiah. And in Acts 10, how he preaches in the home of Cornelius. He wrote two letters of the New Testament. He was probably the source of the Gospel of Mark. Peter's encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ changed him. His life before the resurrection gave every evidence of living for worldly glory. But after the resurrection, he learned to die to himself in the world and to live for God's glory. And so it is the case for you too. Jesus' resurrection changes your life. Without the resurrection, you are lost in this world. You're unable to glorify and praise God the way that you ought to. But with the resurrection of Christ, you are able to live a life of praise to God. You have been born again of God your Father, and by faith you have a hope beyond what this world can offer. By faith you see with spiritual sight the inheritance waiting for you. And by faith God keeps you so that you will safely receive the inheritance that he has to offer you. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we, we long to live a life that is motivated by praise to you. And Father, we pray that you would give us the sight to see more and more our Savior, Jesus Christ, in his resurrection. And Father, we pray that you would apply the truths of this resurrection to us so that we would indeed live a life that is in praise to you. As it says in Colossians, that we would have our minds fixed on things that are in heaven, not be focused on things of this earth. Father, please teach us to look ahead and to trust in your promise. And please, Father, transform our lives so that we would live more and more in conformity to the way that you have raised us along with our Savior Christ. We look forward to the day when he returns and we pray that he is coming quickly. Amen.